Ah, damn, ladies and gentlemen, what a day this has been as I record. Tom Brady retiring, mass protests, mass strike protests in the UK, and of course, Beyonce dropping the world tour. It was Public Enemy's Chuck D, bring the noise. Network. I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've all had a good week in circumstances. <sighs> good luck, guys, because <laughs> some of these some of these Beyonce fans are about to get disappointed. Oh my gosh. You're going to have to go to some extreme lengths. You might have to dip out the freaking country of your origin to, to get to get a show in. Because, I don't know, man. I don't know. It's, it's going to be an absolute bloodbath. Can't... Oh, I mean, I'm just going to sit and watch. Like, you know what I mean? So, you know, I talked about it last week in some fashion. But I just don't seek out arena shows like that. I don't seek out the biggest show on earth, right? Because why... Uh, try and try and you know kill everybody to get one ticket. You know what I mean. Um, if I can't get a ticket in my in the comfort of my own home, then what's the point? You know what I mean. Um, I just find it a bit just I just find it a bit od. You know what I mean. Just to I need to see I'll do it. You know what I mean. Just chill. <laughs> it's chill. I get it. Right. I get it. Right, Beyonce. Beyonce. Right. Of course. But um, I don't know, man. I don't know. I like me some Beyonce, right? But I'm not. I'm just, a prices no, um, just a way to just not not not, not my steeds on that front, and B just ah ah too many too many sharp toothed people about when it comes to that kind of shit, man. You know what I mean? Just not not here for that. Not here for the, all that uh, rigmarole. Um, but anyway, with that said, good luck everybody. Good luck. Hope you get your Beyonce tickets. But some of you will fail. Just so you know. Um, but yeah, man, uh, mass strikes today, as I record, is, I'm recording on a Wednesday, dropping on Thursday as usual, and, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice sight, it's a really nice sight to see, um, you know, just teachers, and, uh, I forget, I forget the rest of them, but yeah, teachers and others, just, um, and other sectors, um, joining together in some fashion, you know what I mean, it's great, it's, it's wonderful to see, and, um, you know, the quicker the Tory government goes, the better for all of us. Um, so let's get it happening. Um, but anyway, let's jump right in. Um, I haven't really, I mean, I'm doing some work, but apart from that, I haven't really got much else to say. Um, yeah, more formats before we begin. Email, socials, writing in the full show notes, and also the rest of the 5VPN uh, lineup. Please go give a spin if you have time on your hands or more. You know, you might not be that person since you're listening to Beyonce um, in preparation for the potential failure of not getting her tickets. <laughs> oh, that said, then the music drop, then the beat drop, and skin to show.
in a week where Memphis reels as the video footage of five police officers murdering Tyree Nichols drops, uh, drops. Uh, and I say five, you know, that's kind of the five that were that put hands on him, but there's also um, a few more that were part of it in some fashion. Um, so yeah, that's um, just a, just another just another just another one, man. And uh, the f- the interesting thing is, is that as people talk about Tyree Nichols, there's also other people, you know, that have died in maybe worse circumstances. Um, and it happens every day in America. And uh, yeah, so it's a wild um, thing to think about. Uh, Rishi Sunak sacks Nadim Zahawi for breaking the ministerial code over his tax affairs. And he was told that in October. And he was also told about Dominic Raab's bullying. Um, and Dominic Raab's doing the job. I just don't know why they insist on taking months. Or or, or, or even not not hiring them immediately. Um, and avoiding all of this. Like they could, they could easily hide all this shit. But for some reason they just put themselves in a line of fire. By getting hired into higher positions. And then getting caught out. I, was just, I, just don't, I, don't, I don't get it. I just don't really get it. But then again, they always fail up. So it doesn't really matter, does it? doesn't matter. So who knows? Uh, all for the book deal, I guess. Uh, Djokovic, Novak Djokovic, wins the Australian Open. A record equaling 22nd Grand Slam title. Obviously equaling uh, Rafa Nadal. Uh, suicide bomber strikes inside a mosque in the northwestern pa- Pakistani city of Peshawar. Peshawar. Uh, killing at least 59 people and wounding another 150. And lastly, the UK expected to be the only major economy to shrink in 2023, according to the IMF. And guess what other country is on there? You guessed it, Russia. Russia, in currently in war, are going to have to have a better economy for have a better economy forecast than the UK. And speaking of that, we hop into our first segment, which is again about the UK, but on a more uh, societal note, uh, racism. Uh, United Nations um, have basically proclaimed that UK is, quote, institutionally racist. And, um, you know, I know that, you know, some of you know that if you're in the UK and you're, you know, not white, you're aware of that. But it's just so interesting how the United Nations are coming at them and uh, just adding on to the shit heap that is the Tory party um, and the, you know, political establishment here in the UK. Um, so I'm going to read this one by uh, Miss Nadine White. Uh, of course, standard procedure. Always reading that Nadine White uh, for the Independent. And let's jump right in. It's called UK's Institutions and United Nations warns as ministers urge to act. So let's jump right in. Racism in the UK is systemic and eroding the rights of black people, a group of United Nations experts have warned following a landmark tour of the country. The experts documented the quote-unquote trauma felt by people of African descent who they said were suffering real d- racial discrimination and injustice with one woman asking, will this ever end? And a side note... Um, this comes, and I'll probably mention this as well in the article, but, um, you know, uh, the Windrush generation are also getting basically re-traumed by one swell of Braverman, so shout out to her. Uh, continuing on. Uh, they also found that a decade of austerity measures had exacerbated racism, racial discrimination, and other intolerance people of African descent encounter. Uh, 
which had an adverse um, impact on their fundamental rights, the experts observed, quote, from the perspective of people of African descent, racism in the UK is structural, institutional and systemic, the group said in a statement. We have serious concerns about impunity and the failure to address racial disparities in the criminal justice system, deaths in police custody, quote-unquote joint enterprise convictions, and the dehumanising nature of the stop-and-strip search, they added. Uh, so, see, how, that UNP, see, these people just took a quick tour, a quick tour of the UK, asked some people some questions, and they already are aware of all the bullshit. It's crazy. In, in the space of however long. Oh, here we go. Fact, find, and visit... I'll read this paragraph. The findings from the Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent, which is part of the UN uh, Human Rights Council, come following the conclusion of a fact-finding visit to the UK and Northern Ireland between 18th and 27th of January. <laughs> oh, gosh. Like, what's, what's that? Nearly just about just under 10 days, 9 days? That's That's outstanding. That's outstanding. The group met members of the public, campaigners, lawyers and politicians to identify challenges faced by black people and to make recommendations for how these could be resolved. The experts pointed out that uh, that for black people's experiences with state and public institutions, the private sector and society were marked by the perpetuation of racial hierarchies. Quote, racial, racialized acts uh, targeting people of African descent have remained steadfast and this experience is similar across different parts of the UK. The experts said they are victimised and have no assurance of effective redress from authorities or the justice system, unquote. The group called on the UK government to do more to pay reparations for its role in the transatlantic enslavement and trafficking of African people and, quote, do more to ensure the rehabilitation, rest- restoration and reconciliation of the state with its people, streamline accessible, independent and effective complaint mechanisms to address racism, ensuring police accountability, fair trial guarantees for all persons, and redress to all persons affected by the Windrush scandal are imperative, said Catherine S. Namakula, chair of the working group. UN's findings come after the working group met bereaved families, including relatives of Chris Cabba with BLAM UK, BLAM, uh, O. Oladeji Omishaw and Sean Rigg, uh, alongside the charity Inquest. Its director, Deborah Cole, said, quote, Inquest sees the impact of structural racism across the breadth of our work, from deaths in custody and detention of Grenfell to, to Grenfell Tower Fire. We view these deaths within the broader context of policing, imprisonment, immigration, health and legal systems in maintaining and exacerbating racial inequalities and discrimination against black people. The failure to examine the potential role racism in state-related deaths means that it remains invisible and protected from any scrutiny. Black people die disproportionately following police contact and are overrepresented in the prison estate. These deaths consistently expose the racist attitudes of state agents, racial stereotyping, inhumane treatment, the excessive use of force, and the systematic neglect of black people's mental and physical well-being. To end the continued injustice of contentious deaths of people of African descent, in the short term we must develop focused investigation and oversight on these deaths. In the long term we must divest resources from the criminal justice system to communities and to properly resource welfare, health, housing, education and social care. Unquote. That was all a quote by the way. It comes after the group rejected the findings of government back omission on the race and ethnicity. <laughs> I'm only tripping up because I remember doing the episode on this and it still makes me laugh reading it. Um, so the 
race and ethnic disparities report authored by Tony Sewell as an attempt to quote unquote normalize white supremacy in April 2021. Um, and um, I have an episode dedicated to that if you want to go spin. Uh, so April 2021, do you do your maths? Uh, the con- controversial and widely contested report said racism was a quote unquote real force, but that Britain was no longer a country where the quote system is deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities unquote. I'm not gonna I'm gonna skip that part because we talked about that before. A government spokesperson said, "Oh, I have to know what the government said." Okay, of course, we strongly reject most of these findings. The report wrongly views people of African descent as a single homogenous group and presents a superficial analysis of complex issues that fails to look at all possible causes of disparities, not just race. We are proud that the UK is an open, tolerant and welcoming country, but this hard-earned global reputation is not properly reflected in this report. We are not complacent and recognise some people experience racism in Britain, but we are very clear that this has no place in our society and must be rooted out. The UK government has made great strides in addressing racial and ethnic disparities, most recently with our groundbreaking Inclusive Britain strategy, which is focused on uh, on closing outcome gaps between people from different ethnic backgrounds. Excuse me. Instead of sowing division, we must celebrate the fact that this country strives to give everybody from every community in every corner of the UK the opportunity to thrive and succeed. And meanwhile, kids seeking asylum have gone missing over i think like 500 of them so yeah there's that um and then everything else that was mentioned so you know apart from that yeah open inclusive super inclusive country you know yeah crazy 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 (sighs) i see what they're doing when they say you know um you know we're not homogenous group and we're not obviously We, we are not homogenous um you know, there are people in the Tory party that are literally doing the exact opposite of what is needed um, for the, uh, what do you want to call it, for the progression of uh, racial equality and, um, and you know, uh, and reconciliation, all that stuff. And redress, all, all, the, all the R's, all the R's, read this, read that, read that. So, you know, we're not homogenous, of course we're not, of course we're not homogenous. Um, nobody is saying that we're homogenous. Um, <laughs> but, and I feel, you know, if you're a person with common sense, um, you know, uh, if, you're, if you're a fully functioning adult, um, you are aware that that is not the case. And uh, nobody, no group of anything is homogenous, you know, it's just stupid to think about. So let's not make that point because we are adults and that is a stupid point to make if we are all of good faith here, right? If Are we all operating on good faith? I'm sure we are. I'm sure we are all operating on good faith. Um, but that just seems like a bad faith argument to make. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, what else can I say? Um, you know, it's just funny that uh, the UN have... have uh, you know, just made a statement on this, and it's just like, yeah, the UK sucks um, racially, and um, you know, just just another, in the words of Pink Floyd, just another brick in the wall, is it not? It's it's just um, you can you can list the the amount of things that is wrong with the UK right now. Um, actually, it was I think it was the anniversary of the exit the other day, um, so there's that too. That was fun. Uh, that's been great. Um, everyone regrets it. Um, apparently, um, apart from three uh, three counties in Lincolnshire, of all places. Um, but yeah, most people regret that shit. Um, so yeah, it's um it's a, it's a great we're in a great state right now, guys. Um, 
if you if you are not living in the UK, um, yeah, man, this is the state. Like, just come on over, man. The the, the water's warm, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and the bangers are on the grill. Like, I don't know what, to, don't know what else to tell you, man. Uh, every 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 sector of the UK is just there's something wrong with it. Healthcare, social, monetary. Uh, fuck it, like sport is even fucked in some ways. Um, yeah, just a lot of ways, man. Just a lot of uh sectors in the UK are just um are just pinging red lights and throwing red flags. But what did the government do? Bat it away, project and deflect, because that's how productive people work. You know, you just constantly um. Put your put your fingers in your ears and going no 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 I can't hear no 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 I can't hear that's that's what you do that's what you do as um, functioning adults as a functioning collective of people in one place with so much power um, that's what you do you all collectively go la 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 can't hear you la 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 I love this country can you not tell. Okay, let's hop into our next article, uh, which is all about reading, because I don't know, man, like, I don't, apart, you know, obviously this podcast does a lot for me when it comes to reading, and uh, help, gives me a reason to read, right, in some ways, um, you know, I have, I, have I, I read, it takes me like, it takes me ages to get through one book, um, I primarily read audiobooks, you know, um, and, you know, that's the correct context to say, right? Read audiobooks. I feel like that's the correct way of saying it. Um, but, you know, I just, uh, when, when I'm given like a physical book and I got two for Christmas this past year, I asked for them, admittedly. But, um, you know, one of them's a photo book, so that's not really the same. But, you know, I've got a book and, um, you know, I've been reading it. I've been trying to, you know, get through it a chapter a bit, um, you know, chapter a week or something like that. I just try and keep it, try and keep it short. But you know, there's so many people that just constantly read, 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 read. My mum constantly read, read, read. But here's the thing: reading is, I feel, a necessity for you know everybody, right? I feel like everybody should, uh, a minimum, be able to read. Of course, right? There are people in the world that aren't, uh, don't have the ability to read, and don't get taught. Um, and in that case, it's a privilege, right? But it, I, I believe, past that, it is a necessity um, for people to read, and not just read, but read with intent not just read a book you know not just read fiction for the rest of your life but you know read news read um you know opinions read this well not, not opinions that's, that's probably lesser down in the hierarchy of what has an opinion um like an asshole but um you know what i mean i feel like people should just read shit man we should we should we should it should be a thing to read academia more um, you know, just read papers, um, you know, uh, but obviously not even I do that. So, you know, I'm not, not saying I'm, I do that, you know what I mean? But I, I, I feel it's encouraged to do so. Um, I do have a, uh, journal of hip hop studies I want to get into. Um, but I don't know when I'm going to make my time for that. But anyway, this is all about reading as you can imagine. Um, and the city called the people who don't read books. Um, it's by Thomas Chatterton Williams, um, and it's via The Atlantic. Let's jump right in. And it's all about 
Kanye and Sam Bankman Freed, by the way. So, you know, trigger warning. <laughs> All right. During Kanye West's uh, spectacular plummet last fall, my friends and I would often marvel at the latest outrageous thing he said. And we would send around clips of what were, in hindsight, terribly suspect comments he previously made. One such example was, quote, I am not a fan of books, unquote, which told Ye, which Ye told in an interview upon the publication of his own book, Thank You and You're Welcome. I didn't know he had his own book. Um, that's the first time I've re- hearing of it. I'm a proud non-reader of books, he continued. That statement strikes me as one of the more disturbing things he ever said. Uh, Ye's, pa- Ye's patient, uh, patently uh, read Pensible's anti-Semitic tirades uh, rightly drew the world to scorn. But his anti-book stance is disturbing because it says something about not only Ye's character, but the smugly solip- solipsistic, that's an interesting word, tenor of, his, of this cultural moment. We have never before had access to so many perspectives, ideas and information. Much of it is fleetingly interesting, but ultimately inconsequential. Not to be confused with expertise, let alone wisdom. This much is widely understood and discussed. The ease which, with which... We can know things and communicate them to one another, as well as launch the success in one realm into pseudo-authority and countless others, has combined with traditional American tendency toward anti-intellectualism and celebrity worship. Toss in a decades-long decline in the humanities, and we get our superficial culture in which we in which even the elite will openly disparage as pointless our main repositories uh, for very for the very best that has been thought. If one person managed to outdo Ye in that season of high-end uh, self-sabotage marking the end of 22, 2022, it was the erstwhile techno-wunderkind Sam Bankman-Fried. In an ill-conceived profile from September published on the Sequoia Capital website, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah everyone gets on the Sequoia Capital website to read a profile, of course, the 30-year-old SBF rails against literature of any kind, lecturing a journalist on why he would, quote, never read a book. Another quote, I'm very sceptical of books, he expands. I don't want to say no book is ever worth reading, but I actually do believe something pretty close to that. I think if you wrote a book, you fucked up, and it should have been a six-paragraph blog post. Outstanding. Outstanding. Outstanding quote. It's a galling sentiment. Every bit as ignorant and arrogant as yeas, but even more worrisome because SBF is not an entertainer who's the debut album was called The College Dropout. He is a supposedly serious young man who was celebrating the corridors of power not only as a financial savant, but also through his highly publicised philanthropy and conspicuous association with the quote-unquote effective altruism moment as a moral genius. The title of that profile, Sam Bankman-Fried, has a saviour complex, and maybe you should too. Outstanding. So again, there's an expression in journalism, quote, three is a trend, unquote. Unfortunately, I have a third example of a prom- of a prominent book skeptic. In a feature reconstructing the undoing of Sean McElwee, Mac- uh, the 30-year-old founder of Data for Progress, New York Magazine noted as noted as McElwee, uh, quote, would put it, books are dumb; they only tell you what people want you to know. Unquote. What? Books are dumb, they only tell you what people want you to know. Huh. Okay. I mean, yeah, but... What? <laughs> the fuck? Oh, that's outstanding. That's that's great. Alright. Anyway, continue on. 
before my brain malfunctions. I confess, I don't really understand what that means. Uh, thank you, not just me. <laughs> Let alone why McElwee uh, thinks it's profound. Shortly after meeting SBF, who spent some $40 million on Democratic causes in 2020 and pledged to give a mind-boggling $1 billion before 2024, McElwee, also an effective altruism evangelist, would become one of his trusted advisors, telling, quote, telling him how, the best direct, best, how best to direct a river of cash, David Freelander uh, writes. It was cool as hell, McElwee told associates, uh, to be advising one of the richest people in the world before he turned 30. Cool is one way to describe these confident young men's fiscal and political uh, interventions. Abysmally ill-informed, maliciously incompetent, and morally bankrupt also come to mind. McElwee's reputation would be ruined after the midterms, principally for producing error-ridden polling data and even allegedly pressuring at least one employee to break campaign finance law and participate in a straw donor scheme, which is apparently a federal crime that SBF has also been charged with. <laughs> of course, yes. All of this happened just as SBF's uh, crypto scam was crashing, obliterating tens of billions of dollars of other people's wealth in the process. It is one thing in practice not to read books, or not to read them as much as one might wish, but it is something else entirely to despise the act in principle. Identifying as someone who categorically rejects books suggests a much larger deficiency of character. As Ye once riffed prophetically during a live performance, quote, I get my quotes from movies because I don't read or from, like, go figure, real life or something. Like, live real life, talk to real people, get information, ask people questions, and it was something about you either die a superhero or you live to become the villain. Villain. Unquote. As clever as that sounds, it really doesn't. Receiving all of your information from SBF, uh, from the SBF ideal six-paragraph blog post, that's just outstanding to me thinking about that, just a six-paragraph blog post. Imagine if everything was condensed into a six-paragraph blog post. Oh, that's great. That's amazing. All right. Um, where was I at? Oh, yeah. Uh, all from the movies uh, and random conversations that Ye prefers is, a foolish, is as foolish as identifying as someone who chooses to only eat fast food. Uh, many books should not have been written, not been published, and writing one is an excruciating process full of failure. But when a book succeeds, even partially, it represents a level of concentration and refinement, a mastery of subject and style, strengthened through patience and clarified in revision that cannot be equaled. Writing a book is an extraordinar- extraordinarily uh, disproportionate act. What can be consumed in a matter of hours takes years to bring to fruition. That is its virtue. And the rare patience a book still demands of reader, those precious slow hours of deep focus, is also a virtue. One might reasonably ask just where, after all, these men have been in such a rush to get to. One might reasonably joke that the answer is jail or obscurity. Late in Anna Karenina, in a period of self-imposed social exile in Italy, Anna and her lover Vronsky are treated to a tirade on the destructive, superficially of the free-thinking young men, pro-disruptors, if you will, who populate the era and have been steeped in quote-unquote ideas of negation. Another quote, In former days, the free-thinker was a man who just who had been brought up in ideas of religion, law and morality, and only through conflict and struggle came, through, came to free thought. Vronsky's friend Golenishev, 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 observes, Ugh. I'm not good at Russian. But now, quote, now, but now there has sprung up a new type of born free thinkers who grow up without even having heard of principles of morality 
or of religion of the existence of authorities, unquote. The problem then, as Tolstoy presents it, was that such an ambitious young man would try it, quote, as he's no fool to educate himself, unquote, and would turn to the, quote-unquote, the magazines instead of, quote, to the classics and theologians and tragedians. Tragedians? 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 Tragedians. I, I, I hate that word already, and historians and philosophers and, you know, all the way, all the intellectual work that came in his way, unquote. A Twitter follower directed me back to this passage after I complained on social network, on that social network, about the outlandish att- uh, contempt our own era's brashest and most lavishly rewarded young men. They always seem to be men, aim at conventional forms of learning. And though unlike in Tolstoy's time, these men may also declare that you fucked up if you bother to read even magazines, they share with previous free thinkers a prideful refusal to believe that the past has something to offer them. Like the free thinkers that provoke Galenishev's scorn, if I'm saying it wrong, I don't care anymore. (laughs) Honestly, these tech excess autodidacts, even yay, fell victim to the core of engineering our our way uh, through every human quandary now embed themselves in a worldview in which, quote, the old creeds do not even furnish matter for discussion, unquote, as Golenishev puts it. Although the uh, three disgraced men I've been describing here are extremes, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that we have grown wildly estranged from genuine wisdom or the humility uh, with which erudition tempers facile notions of invincibility. I don't think it's a coincidence that two of these self-satisfied non-readers are adherents of effective altruism either. When taken to the extreme and absurdly calculated intellectual onanism that can't uh, survive uh, contact with a single good novel, that's so hilarious that I've heard heard the word onanism twice in the past week, and uh, before that I'd never heard of it. Outstanding. Um, If you want to know what it means, look it up. It's kind of hilarious. Uh, when I was in my 20s and writing my first book, I know I really fucked up there. I came across a quote I can no longer find the source of that said essentially, quote, you could fill in, uh, you could fill a book with all I know, but with all I don't know, you could fill a library, unquote. That's a bar. It's a helpful visualiz- visualization, perhaps the most basic and pragmatic justification for deep reading. And though correlation is not causation, I submit that we'd save ourselves an enormous amount of trouble in the future if we'd agree to a simple litmus test. Immediately disregard anyone in the business of selling a vision who proudly proclaims they hate reading. Preach. Preach on that final final fucking tip. Um, it is why I don't fuck with Ye anymore. It is um, why I don't fuck with Jay-Z anymore. And why did I say Jay-Z? Because if you listened to that episode that I did last year and read my State of the Hip-Hop Union address in 2023, dropped at January 4th, please go peep the link if you want to read. I believe that Jay-Z doesn't read. Um, It is allegedly, 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 but I believe he doesn't read. And because of that, I refuse to um, even think about that dude anymore especially when it comes to um, progression of uh, hip-hop as a entity and uh, everything else that he's involved with. Um, but yeah, that's a... Let me read that quote again. You could fill a book with all I know, but with all I don't know, you could fill a library. That's a bar. That's a fucking bar. I love that. Because that's basically it, isn't it? Um, when you... When you... Uh, when you when you start learning shit, like I have in the past, let's say, decade, um, 
you re- the more you know, the more you realize that you know nothing at all, right? And that's basically what the quote is also saying, right? In essence, and um, it's true. It's, it really is true. Um, when you just when you know more shit, there's just it opens the door to more shit, and you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't know fuck all, do I? <laughs> you know what I mean, and I've been getting that, especially when it comes to music. You know, um, you know, I I am pretty you know deep rooted in you know hip hop. I'm semi rooted in you know jazz these days, but you know I'm missing. I'm probably missing a ton of fucking work, even in the past like four weeks. You know, what I mean, I've probably missed a ton of work, and that's fine. You have to just be confident in the fact that you know you go at your own pace, and uh, you know not everybody consumes voraciously um, anything, right? Um, so yeah, you just have to you just have to, I guess, you know, forgive yourself on that front, and um, believe that you know at least you have the intent, you know, to to read certain books or to listen to that artist at some point or watch that TV show, watch that film that your friend's been constantly recommending to you and begging you to watch. Um, and yeah, in any fashion, you know, I mean, it's not even just in the pursuit of knowledge, but just um, in general. Um, you know, you have to, I guess, if you love the subject, then you love the subject, you know, and you'll get there. You'll get there. If you continue to love the subject, then you'll continue to get there um, and... And uh, you'll feel better for it. You'll feel better for it, knowing that you persisted um, in in that quest. And uh, that's what's all about, man. That's, that's, isn't that life in general? Isn't that life just going through and finding what you love and continuing to pursue that love of whatever it is, even if it's just sitting on your ass and playing video games? You know what I mean? Like, if if that makes you happy, that makes you happy. Um, and you know, and that's that's all it is. So um, yeah, but um, if you have a actual genuine dislike to reading I yeah that red, reddest the reddest of red flags the reddest of red flags for me on that one move on to music and we talk now talking about the concept of um, musicians uh, selling their catalogs um, so you know you don't you don't have to be too hard into music business journalism or you know music business in general you don't have to be a you know subscriber to billboard to be aware of this um, but there have been plenty of artists over the past few years I think it started with Bob Dylan notably um, for me personally I think that was the first one I noticed I was just like what why is he doing that Right, because the the ownership thing is, um, you know, just as I was, you know, getting into the a mindset of like every I should own their masters and stuff like that, and now people and now I are just going the other way and just selling all their shit uh, for a lump sum, and I'm just like, okay, um, what's going on, right? And even while I'm still a little bit confused of why, hopefully this article helped me a bit, um. You know, it's 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 um it's exacerbated more by um, the recent most recent one, which was Justin Bieber. Um, so the difference between Justin Bieber and the rest of them is that Justin Bieber still has a career. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, like you know, a high value career, right? Obviously, um, Bob Dylan can sell a tour. Obviously, Bruce Springsteen can sell a tour, but they have also sold their shit. You know what I mean? So. Hopefully you know what I mean when I mean just when I compare Justin Bieber to someone like Bruce Springsteen, right? Obviously they are all still popular, 
but Justin Bieber's Justin Bieber. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, while they have sold their catalogs, and that kind of makes sense because you know they're at the twilight of their lives overall, right? Justin Bieber's what thirty? Not even that, like probably twenty, twenty-nine, thirty, something like that. I don't fucking know. Young, right? <laughs> he, he could still, he could still make bu- uh, make bank. So uh, I was wondering why. But I found this. Um, this is by Dan Runcie of Trapital. Uh, it's called Why Selling Music Catalogs is a Complex Decision. So hopefully we should get some uh, differing uh, viewpoints um, pertaining to this subject. So let's jump right in. A few weeks ago, Procter & Gamble acquired Miel Organics, a black-owned beauty company which led to mixed responses. While some prayed, praised the founders for their sale, others shamed them for selling to a big white-owned corporation. The founders had to convince customers that the formulas won't change under P&G. I'm not surprised. Many artists hear the same critiques when they sell their music. The rise of ownership conversations has increased general awareness of its importance for financial independence. This is a good thing, but the narrative makes these decisions seem more seem more black and white than reality. Artists have many reasons to sell, and ownership of music assets is often more complicated than it seems. Music ownership is active, not passive. Music is often incorrectly compared to artwork. A valuable painting just needs basic maintenance an adequate storage environment, and an occasional museum tour to appreciate in value. Meanwhile, music is more like a collection of assets that require a family office that understands the ins and outs of entertainment, otherwise the value of the assets may likely decline. Artists constantly receive pitches for placements in TV and film, sample requests from artists they never heard of, and more. They need to follow the next big thing to to determine if it's a fit. The best managers are actively or actively looking for ways to maximise the asset in ways that the artists and their family desire. In the past three years, Primary Wave, New, York, uh, New York-based private music publishing and talent management company, Jesus Christ, why did I struggle with that? <laughs> New York-based private music publishing and talent management company, a long-ass title, um, quadrupled the annual uh, revenue of Whitney Houston's estate. 30 times its merch sales, and the estate still owns 50% of its assets moving forward. Primary Wave had the resources to do what Houston's family was not about to do <coughs> Excuse me, on their own. Even, even though Houston's 2022 biopic, I Want to Dance with Somebody, has flopped at the box office, the estate is still in a better place than it was in 2019. Music is cyclical, and the market is high. Music, I'm reading the subtitles for a you know, particular reason, I guess, in this, in this case. I usually don't, but i am do it for this one. Music has, uh, also has a shorter shelf life than artwork. The Mona Lisa was created 700 years ago and is still the most valuable painting in the world. But in music, we barely talk about the songs that came out 70 years ago. Here's what I wrote last month in the Trapital music, uh, Mailbag Q&A. Uh, quote, but the notion of a single song is an evergreen asset may have been a bit overstated. Dot, dot, dot. Every song has a decay curve. Some are less steep than others, but it's there. Even Michael Jackson's Thriller. Even Michael Ke- Michael Carey's. <laughs> Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. They will all get less relevant and less played over time. Oh, fuck for that. I hate, oh, I hate the Mariah Carey song. I hate it. It's so annoying. The fact that people play it like just as soon as Halloween ends, it's like, please, I beg you, stop it. Just give it a fucking rest. Like, you don't owe her anything, okay? Anyway... Given the non-perpetual value of a song, there's a desire to time the market. The music industry has gone through historic highs and lows in recent decades. 
Many artists are currently receiving 20 times and 30 times multiples on the, I should say X, uh, on the assets uh, annual revenue, which is quite high. But if an artist holds off now uh, to time the next high mark, there's a risk that the artist may no longer be around and control of their assets may be left to their family members who aren't equipped to manage all. In those cases, it's easier for the artists and their families to take the lump sum payment today and invest that money in other assets easier to pass down to future generations. Other artists prefer to keep it all themselves. Last week, I broke down why Diddy doesn't want to sell Bad Boy Records. He has turned down offers because he has ways to maximise the asset with other brands in the Combs Enterprise portfolio. Similarly, Russ says he turned down a $50 million offer for his music and often says he would never sell regardless of the price. This is no surprise that though your old ice often says that, quote, his soul is not for sale, unquote, which implies he places a priceless value on his music assets, even if he was offered $100 million. For many artists and fans, the emotional connection to ownership outweighs the financial upside. Okay, that's where I, that's where I'm, that's where my brain comes into it. It's just like, it's more about the emotional connection, you know what I mean? And owning your shit. Like, I want to own my shit, you know what I mean? So, I get it. Um, artists want liquidity for several reasons. Entertainers can be easily, can easily become asset rich and cash poor. All it takes is one or two big advances and the lifestyle uh, creeps set in. Uh, there's pressure to keep up with the Joneses. Once that advance money is gone, the artist hopes that the, those royalty checks, touring revenue, and other businesses ven- business ventures will pay the bills, taxes, and other debts. But that assumes that everything else about the artist's life is in line. Dr. Dre just sold a lot of his uh, assets for... Uh, I, f- I don't know. I forget what that squiggle is. Um, up to 200 million, I think it is. Uh, but this is a 57-year-old man recovering from a near-death brain aneurysm and a $100 million divorce settlement. Sure, he made good money from the Beats by Dre acquisition by Apple, but that was nine years ago. Plus, any Apple stock he still likely owns is down 20% in the last year. It's easy to understand why he may prefer $200 million today to $10 million a year uh, for the foreseeable future. Another example is Justin Bieber. He's one of the youngest artists to publicly sell his music in a reported $200 million deal. But if Justin didn't have to postpone tour after tour after tour, he would likely have more cash to fund his lifestyle. I spoke to a few sources close to the deal who said that his liquidity for Bieber, uh, this liquidity for Bieber will help cover money owed from those cancelled tour days. The music business is confusing by design. This leads to even more confusion about how the industry works, even among people who work in every day. The discussion around these asset sales is another symptom of that. It's great to see the artists who turn down deals because they have the means to maximise the, the asset on their own. They are likely understand its full value. It's also great to see executives like Coach K and P, Coach K and P, okay, potentially sell their record labels, reap the rewards of what they built with quality control music, and continue what they do best. Continue doing what they do best. But keeping the asset to just to quote unquote keep it, or shaming others who decide to sell, may be missing the forest from the trees. This isn't about selling grandma's house. This is about maximizing value for an asset that will inevitably lose its value 40 years from now. By then, those masters may be more valuable as family heirlooms than as consistent revenue-generating assets. But it all depends on the artist's goals. <sighs> yeah, and that's, um, that's a really jarring thing to think about, right? Um, just thinking about, you know, it's, it's a logical decision um, to make. Um, and 
It's, uh, I, I wouldn't I'd, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's you know soul selling you know um but I guess um I guess it I guess it depends on the artist right I feel um you know Justin Bieber has never really amounted for much um <laughs> much to me um but for someone like Little Sims for example where you know I'm so deeply you know, emotionally invested in her artistry um, and the way she talks about, you know, how the industry is just constantly playing with her. Um, and she's talked about that over, for, you know, for years now. If she did it, it would come in bad taste. I would understand it, right? And I would, you know, eventually be okay with it because I still get to listen to her music. She's just got a bag, you know what I mean? I can't hate on that. Um, but it will, that would leave a bit of, taste in my mouth um to be listening to someone something like the track introvert and <laughs> and and just be like oh well you well you know you sold your sold your music for a bag so i, I don't know right but it's a it's a it's a you know it's it's a it's a weird thing it's a very weird thing like i get why someone like russ would you know be so clenched to it i don't listen to his music but i understand that that dude's is very independent and uh you know i get it and that's where that's where the respectability comes in i don't listen to his music but i respect him i respect him in that front he you know does it all by himself or primarily by himself and is completely independent and you know does that goes down that road and you know in that case he's a success story for a lot of people um and i respect that um and, you know, I don't care that Diddy wants to keep his own shit because it's fucking Diddy. Fuck Diddy. Who gives a shit about Diddy? Um, like he's he's rich. He's fine. He's good. Like, if he doesn't want to sell it, then I don't really care. If he does sell it, I still don't care. It's fucking Diddy. So it for me personally, when it comes to this, it depends on the artist. Like if you, if someone like Russ sold his shit, then it would be very antithetical to literally everything he has purported himself to be for the past however many years he's been active. Um, a little bit lesser for Little Sims, but um, it was leave a bit of taste in my mouth. But for someone like Justin Bieber or you know or uh, or, or Diddy, I I I could guess I could give less of a fuck. <laughs> So we finish up um, on something nice and soft, nice soft read. Um, I found this uh, little piece uh, by the New Statesman about uh, Mr. Edward Hopper, and um, yeah, I just, I just, um, I don't really have a reason to read really, but uh, I just like the work of Edward Hopper. And uh, if you guys aren't aware of who he is, um, there's a great YouTube video um, explaining his most um, iconic, uh, iconic piece of art. Um, I think it's, I think the YouTube channel is called, like, Great Artwork Explained, Ooh, something, something like that, I'm gonna look it up as I, I'm gonna look it up after I read, um, but, um, if you wanna see the, the artwork I'm talking about, it's called Nighthawks, um, and it was, uh, it dropped, my uh, drops, <laughs> I always talk about, talk about shit like it, like it's a fucking album, <laughs> it's like, Edward Hop, new Edward Hopper drop in in 1940s. <laughs> I think it was 1947 uh, or 42. I forget, um, but it's in the 40s. <clears throat> I think yeah, actually it was after the war. I think so, 47. Um, 
Anyway, um, so yeah, he's a he's a fascinating dude. Um, I'm gonna try and look up the YouTube channel. I uh, think I think it's called Great Art Explained. Hang about, let me let me look up uh, Great Art Explained, and that is the one I'm talking about. Here we go, Great Art Explained. Yeah, in 15 minutes, and uh, if you look up Nighthawks, um, he has a really good one on uh, Hokusai's Great Art, uh, Great Wave, um, which has obviously been rinsed to shit. And uh, he also did Night Nighthawks as well, which is absolutely outstanding. And just the way he breaks it down is very fat. Uh, oh, it's a dude anyway. But uh, the way he breaks it down <coughs> is very fascinating. And he, you know, covers the kind of like a brief history of the artist. But anyway, I'm saying all this just to recommend that. But I'm reading this. It's called Edward Hopper's City of Steel Lives. Uh, and it's by Nick Burns. Um, so let's jump right in. It's hard to imagine a more distinctively American reaction to Paris than that of the painter Edward Hopper when he arrived for the first time in autumn 1906. Quote, Paris is a very graceful and beautiful city, almost too formal and sweet to the taste, after the raw disorder of New York, unquote. Hopper wrote to his, mo- uh, wrote to his mother in a letter now on display at the exhibition Edward Hopper's New York in the city's Whitney Museum. Okay, so this is a bias being written about. Because there's an exhibition going about, and I would really love to go there <laughs> right now because that'd be sick. Um, but I'm I'm busy trying to sort out the uh, the one from last week uh, at Ravens Row, so I'm gonna uh, stop on stop off there for that and uh, stick into that one exhibition a year. I've, 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 since I did one last year, I'm gonna keep the streak and hopefully do one a year um, and grow from that. Anyway, uh, Paris was startlingly clean. Its transportation reliable and precise. The climate milder than New York's, biting cold. But its people were, quote, small and have poor physiques, unquote. Here there were none of the wide shoulders and well-cut features one found on Broadway, and the sky lacked the deep blue purity of New York. For all their smartness, the buildings were monotonous, all painted the same buff colour. Hopper, who grew up in uh, just north of New York City in a stern Baptist household, soon returned to the American metropolis, where, we, where he would reside for almost 60 years, his entire career. Something in Paris had been attractive to the young, sensitive artist. He refused to paint London, which he found squat and dingy. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> squat and dingy. Oh. I mean, it's, it's, in some places, it's not wrong. Uh, but in the end, Paris was simply too nice for his taste, a judgment that contains a certain humility and pride. He saw something greater in the raw disorder of New York. But how to render New York in art? In Paris, Hopper dis- depicted urban infrastructure, the trusses of the Pont d'Art, uh, dark in the mild afternoon sun, with a lilac-coloured louvre half-obscured in the background. He tried painting New York the same way. 1913 canvas shows Queensborough Bridge towering high over a few houses in Congress ho- holdouts of a previous era. But the painting is a failure. The same, straight up, isn't it? The painting is a failure. Just objective, you know, objectively, it's a failure. Um, I might like it, who knows? That's that's what I hate about art people, that they say shit so objectively, and it's just like, no, that's your opinion. I, at least at least, with, at least with film critics, I know it's just their opinion, and music critics as well, except with music critics and, and, and film critics as well, they hide behind a publication, and I fucking hate that. I, I just hate that. Like, put you... I know their names on it, but people don't come at them in that way. Um, they say, like, you know, Pitchfork is garbage for this rating. It's just like... How about you shit on the person who reviewed it? You know what I mean? Not to defend Pitchfork. Fuck Pitchfork. But you know what I mean. Anyway, but it's art people. 
Art people irritate me in the way they talk sometimes, but the painting is a failure. Excuse me? Huh? In what way? Like, did it not sell well? Oh, okay. Well, you know, still might still look at some people. Who knows? Anyway, be using the eye beholder for what I'm saying. The same line that Q Hopper used to paint the, the Louvre fails to impart dignity to a forlorn colonial house and the bridge in life, an enormous, terrible cage of steel looks indistinct and almost quaint as it recedes into a pale blue sky. The scene demanded contrast between the oncoming violence of industrial modernity and the defenseless bucolic vestiges <coughs> of the excuse me, earlier of the early colonial period. Instead, Hopper's version is blandly picturesque. The habits the painter had acquired in Paris appear, appeared utterly ill-fitted to depicting American realities. But in the 1920s, Hopper struck a, struck a rich vein in his observation of New York. His canvases gained definition and contrast. His colours became purer, more American. Infrastructure provided the setting, not the subject of his stand-up pictures, in the striking uh, from Williamsburg Bridge, 1928. The eponymous bridge is the artist's vantage point onto a heterogeneous, genius, heterogeneous, I can't talk properly, a collection of apartments, in one of which a woman sits facing away. And that's the thing he does. Like It's always a person just like... It's always just a person looking blank stare. Just everything is, is great. Anyway. The elevated trains whisked commuters in the second floor level past apartments and allowed for tantalising glances into people's private lives. In Night Windows, 28, uh, the, pro- uh, the large posterior of a woman bending over is visible through a window as a kitchen fire seems to burn out of control in an adjoining room, a scene that is ambiguously voyeuristic, ambiguously allegorical. That reminds me of like something like Rear Window, but anyway. How did Hopper, how Hopper bridge the sense of beauty and unity he saw in Europe with the contrast and chaos of American life? A key element was the meditating, uh, mediating role played by generosity? Generosity, okay. In this regard, it was no accident that Hopper spent much of 1917-25 to 25 carrying out commercial art assignments, which provided him with the means to undertake his own artistic career. Especially lauded were his cover illustrations for issues of the Morse Dry Dock Dial, the quote, house organ of a major shipbuilder in Brooklyn used to boost employee morale and curb labour union efforts, quote unquote, according to the Whitney. On Hopper's dial uh, covers, stylized workers swing great hammers or behold their work with hands on hips. There's this sense, uh, there is the sense uh, the viewer is seeing not a specific scene from life, but a kind of archetype. Hopper's commercial works were pot boilers, but they are not unrelated to his mature artistic oeuvre. The artistic uh, artists' uh, New York scenes all convey a sense of the generic. New York Corner, 1913, is an obvious early example. In spite of the telltale smokestacks of Manhattan's east side, the title asks the viewer to think of the city in the abstract. Later works such as Early Sunday Morning, 1930, which shows a row of shops and variously shaded second-floor windows along a typical New York street, seem intended to convey a certain idea of the city rather than a specific scene. In no sense, though, should his detached yet probing generous, generosity, uh, isn't it generosity? Well, is generosity a different word, I guess? I, I don't know. Uh, generosity be confused with the flat melodrama of Norman Rockwell, to whom he is often compared to Hopper's chagrin. Uh, quote, does everything from photos, they look it too, Hopper said of his rival. Uh, this generalised equality, uh, equality extends to Hopper's depiction of women as well. 
but for a different reason. As a young Baptist, Hopper found live figure drawing a little shocking, and the adult painter used his wife, the artist Josephine Hopper, as almost his sole model. Although he tried hard to disguise her, all of Hopper's women have Josephine's broad shoulders and wide mouth. This blurring has a double valence, signaling either that to Hopper his wife was the first and last woman on earth, or that in his mind she represented simply the abstract category woman in the canvases <laughs> where, like the tense after-hour scene office at night, 1940, Hopper's own desire seems present. We are compelled to ask, is he longing for Josephine or taunting her with his desire for another? Hopper was a close observer of the changing presence of women in the 20th century city. Tables for ladies signals the increasing presence of restaurants catering to unaccompanied women, a group who the exhibition notes were previously often assumed to be prostitutes. There are in fact no unaccompanied ladies in the painting, just a married couple, but women alone at home are a recurring theme in Hopper's work. Seen through a window or facing one, clothed or nude, engaged in domestic activity or simply sitting, standing, thinking. Morning Sun, 52, shows an ageing woman in bed facing the merciless sun at a row of brick buildings outside, displaying weariness, but also a certain resolution. The depiction is sympathetic, yet brutally honest. The model, of course, was Josephine. For the exhibition's curator, Kim Connerty, Hopper's, uh, Hopper's was a... Hopper's? Why is it... Why is it... Um, uh, like that. Uh, Hopper's was a contrarian uh, vision of a horizontal city one opposed to the skyscrapers that were then sprouting upwards in Manhattan, but his vision vision diverged in other ways too. Despite Hopper's reputation as a great realist painter, his city is noticeably cleaner and emptier than New York. Streets are often deserted and always free of rubbish. Cafes have just a few patrons. Train cars have just a few riders sitting a few seats apart. And that's what I'm going to pin that. Uh, there's a few more paragraphs, let me finish, but um, I'm going to pin that bit because that's kind of the thing that I really enjoy about him. But anyway, as the 20th century continued and New York transformed, Hopper lost many of his touchstones. Manhattan's elevated trains were buried underground, becoming subways. Deprived of sources of keen, specific urban observation, his generic sea scenes and metropolitan allegories lost some of their power. The unconvincing office in a small city depicts a sunken-eyed man in what looks to be a white concrete box overlooking older buildings and an apparent dig at mod- uh, modernism's lack of situation in its environment. But it is Hopper who seems most lost. <laughs> I love the way this dude's writing this, seems most lost. The artist who died in 67 painted an atomized urban landscape in an age when social ties were still strong. Although New York's skyline is today dominated by skyscrapers, its streets strewn with garbage, its establishment cramped and busy, in some sense, Hopper's visions of, a solid, of solitude are closer to life now than during his career. But neither is the more exciting side of Hopper's world totally out of reach. The outer boroughs of Brooklyn, Queens and the Bronx, elevated trains still run. The passenger st- is still able to look out the window at apartment buildings going by, squares of yellow light in the dark, so many little, little stages where from time to time a figure moves, is still, is gone. That was a very poetic uh, way of writing. Shout out to Mr. Burns on that front. Um, but yeah, I just um, I think the reason why I like his work so much um, is because of that um, that uh, that overt wants to have your city look more serene than it is. I guess it's not realistic in that sense. Obviously, you know, New York, how many millions of people, right? Even in the even in you know the forties, fifties, and sixties, are still. Hustle and bustle, right? 
and um you know i enjoy i enjoy you know places at night a lot um i enjoy london at night in some ways um in some locations obviously not like the center of london because obviously it's always busy but um you know just when you when you're on like a tube tube like the lot like you know like a tube train right and, and uh, there's only a few people in your in your particular like cab right i don't know just like i like the I like the serenity of just having a few people in this large city with, you know, nearly 10 million people now in it and only like four people in the same tram as you. I don't know. I just love that. I love that idea um, visually, just um, contextually. And that's kind of why I like Hopper's work is has this loneliness to it, but I think it's a comfortable loneliness. That's how I portray it. Um, it's how I like to see it. Um, even with Nighthawks, which you can look up yourself. And you can look up all of these, by the way. You know, you can Google it and have a look for yourself. Um, but, you know, even with Nighthawks, it was, you know, it's just a few people in the cafe, right? And outside it's very clean. Um, and the and the place, and the cafe's well lit. Um, it seems like, you know, Last Order's kind of kind of uh, vibe. It looks like it's, you know, 2 a.m. And, and it's about to close at 3. Um, but, yeah, it's just um, there is a... There's a loneliness to it, but in my mind, there's like a comfortable loneliness to some of it. Um, and I don't know, I just love that. I, I love, I like comfortable loneliness. I enjoy it. I, you know, I'm, I'm alone most of the time and uh, I enjoy it. I enjoy reading on my own. I enjoy listening to music on my own. I do a lot of things on my own. Photography, I go to shows on my own. I do a lot of things alone. And, you know, I like that in my life. Um, it will change at some point, I'm sure. But um, I I enjoy it for what it is, and that's kind of why I enjoy Hopper's work because he sees it, he sees a city in a different way, and that's how I like to see it. Um, in in a lot of ways, I I'm, I'm not a fan of hustle and bustle. I'm really not. Um, apart from apart from when I'm listening to like you know really just uh, energetic music coming out the tube, and uh, you know just everyone's like racing to the next next part of their journey, and I'm just like walking, just feeling like a fucking I'm feeling invincible. Like if I, I've, I've said this before um, to my people, where I'm just like, I've said this off wax, but if you give me some earphones, give me some music, I will feel invincible. I can do anything. Like it's great. It's it's it really. It, I really feel like that genuinely. Um, if there's an, if I need to walk for a certain amount of time, if I like walk for an hour, right? I got an hour walk ahead. Phew, easy. If I got a four hour travel ahead, phew, easy. Give me some music. I'm good. Give me some music. Give me some like audio books or podcasts for like the train ride. I'm there. Boom! I can go to Scotland if you want me to. Like, and, and honestly, it's easy for me. It, time flies by. Um, but anyway, that's why um, that's why I enjoy Edward, Hopper, Edward Hopper's work um, in general. Um, just to get back to the point. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, we shall leave it there. From the Fifth End Podcast Network. Let me know if you like any artists, by the way. Like, I don't know if um, how many people are into paintings like that. I'm I'm not even into paintings like that, to be honest. I just like certain people's work. Um, I don't really have like a top five or anything. Um, but I do enjoy Edward Topper's work uh, whenever I see it. Um, but anyway, if you have any artists, then put me on. Put me on. Let me know why you like them as well. Uh, give me some specifics. But with that said, ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth End Podcast Network, I'm trying to say this bit was good. Music, intro music was too much by Vanilla. Thanks to your music for the ability to use track. Find both their links in the full show notes. And thanks to Nappy High, a friend of 5 Nappy High, for the ability to use Charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. 
Good luck with the Beyonce tickets. <laughs> and until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.